Hello and welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church. My name is Wade Giffen. I'm one of the pastors here and it's my honor to welcome you in today. It's a great day for you to join us because we are starting a new series today called Wrestling with Doubt. I think sometimes as we think about faith, having a sense that we might have some doubts along the way is not something that's usually welcomed. But the reality is doubt can be an opportunity for a deeper journey of faith. And we're going to work on some of those questions today and in the next three weeks. So buckle up and here we go. What about now? Hey, there he is. <clears throat> hey, good morning, church. Happy New Year. It is great to see you in this, uh, in this new year. I know two weeks ago I said I'll see you next year, next year, but I wasn't doing my math right. So it was good to see you last year, last week, but definitely Happy New Year. Um, if, if you're new here, if you're a guest uh, uh, online or in the room and we've not met yet, my name is Wade, I'm one of the pastors here, and it is an honor to be with this community of faith and to be able to uh, be pastor here. <clears throat> one of the things that I love about Trinity is that we... Um, make sure that we are engaged in caring for persons other than just ourselves. That, of course, we have things that kind of focus inside, but it's all with the purpose of being Christ's love in the world. I want to invite you to dinner. Uh, put this on your calendar. It's next Sunday, anywhere from 4 to 6. You don't have to stay the whole time. Just come and go. We're going to have a spaghetti dinner in this room with a purpose. And that is so that we can have our bellies filled during that meal, but we can also help um, to feed others who don't have it that comes so easy. Nicole Holman is one of our um, folks here, one of our uh, members of the church that provides leadership to mission. She wants to tell you about it. Hello, my name is Nicole Holman. I'd like to invite you to attend Trinity's After Holiday Dinner on Sunday, January 14th from 4 to 6 p.m. in Fellowship Hall. As part of this event, we're asking you to consider supporting one of our mission partners, NEMAP Food Pantry, so that together we can help our neighbors in need. You can offer your support to NEMAP by shopping for meal kits and bringing them with you to the dinner. Meal kits could include a pasta meal with pasta, canned sauce and Parmesan cheese, a pizza meal with the dry pizza dough mix, sauce and pepperoni, or even a donation of soup mixes and canned soups, maybe a can opener. No contribution is too small. If you're not able to make it to the dinner, but would still like to offer your support, you may also make a financial donation to NEMAP through the Trinity website. As always, questions can be directed at the church office. We look forward to seeing you on the 14th. Thanks, Nicole. And if your memory is like mine and you might not remember exactly how to do that, we'll give you a postcard on the way out so you have, have, those, have those details. So we're starting a new series today. It is called Wrestling with Doubt. Anybody out there ever wrestled with doubt in your journey of faith? Tell the truth. Absolutely. And uh, uh, it's not only called Wrestling with Doubt, but it's called Wrestling with Doubt, Finding Faith. And it's inspired by an event that Nicole, our 
family Trinity director, and Kim and I attended in Kansas City at the church where um, Adam Hamilton is pastor, and he did this really brilliant piece around it, and we got immediately inspired and said, that series, we're going to do a series on that next year. Because like many pastors, he tells of the many, many people who have come to him over the years with really serious doubts, doubts about faith. Doubts about God, doubts about the Bible, um, and the list that we could talk about around doubts in faith is endless, isn't it? Of all of the pastoral conversations that I have had over three and a half decades of ministry, I would suspect that the majority, a big number of those, were people who were wanting to talk about their doubts. Since so many people that I have experienced have actually said that they are struggling, you always know that's just a tiny sample, that it's probably, and it's my suspicion, that many, if not all of us, did you hear me use the word us? If not all of us go through that from time to time. So this series is intended to give us some handles on those experiences of doubt. Now, sometimes... I think doubt is a hard word for us to live into. And so sometimes what I will say <clears throat> rather than is uh, doubt is questions. I don't know, there's something about using the word questions that all of a sudden gives us permission to be able to explore them. But here's the thing. Here's a point I want to make at the beginning of this journey about doubt. This is very important for us uh, to have some success in this journey. And that is <clears throat> there are two ways in which we often approach doubt. One of them is positive. We approach it in a healthy way. We want to explore it a little bit more. We want our doubt to be the opportunity to grow in some way. The other way we often we respond to doubt is that when we have questions and we don't wrestle with them, we don't try to figure out what we're uh, what's in our mind, it becomes an obstacle to faith, even to the point my heart has broken so many times when I've seen people come to faith, uh, come to doubt, not work through it, and they just give up on the spiritual life altogether. They're gone. It's too hard. Y'all, that's not ideal. So this week and over the next three weeks, we want to talk about that. And so this week's focus is this question, is the Bible true? Is the Bible true? Perhaps there is one piece of scripture that is most often quoted and most often turned to when it comes to a question about the scriptures. And it's over there in 2 Timothy in chapter 3. I bet you've heard it before. It goes like this. Every scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for showing mistakes, for correcting and for training character so that the person who belongs to God can be equipped to do everything that is good. So what has been my experience uh, around the things of scripture that has been very difficult for folks that's led to some doubt and some really important questions. There are some common themes that I've seen over the years. One of those is the violence that we see in the Old Testament. Violence that's not only there, but violence that is attributed to God or even commanded by God. For example, parents 
Why was the death penalty commanded by God as punishment for persistently disobedient children? Or what about the moments of genocide, wiping out a whole people in the Old Testament? Or what about the many places in the New Testament, especially in the writings of Paul, that clearly come from a patriarchal time and society and its teachings about a woman's place in the church and in the family? Or what about the debate in, that, that often comes up between science and scripture. In one of my congregations that I served, I had a physicist, a PhD physicist. And one of the things that he often talked about was how many times he was challenged by his colleagues in the scientific communion, who, community who simply could not understand how he could be a Christian and a physicist. They didn't fit together for them. And he rejected that idea. And, and, and he, would, he would tell me something kind of like this. He would say, in my work, I become more aware of God in physics. Because when I look at this, I see God in the physics. And he saw physics as one of the brilliant things that God wove into creation in order for human to have life that would be sustained. Do you want an example? Gravity. Y'all, we need gravity, right? Could you imagine this room without it? We need gravity to, to live. And none of these things that I have mentioned even begin to touch on the places in Scripture where it seems to be out of sync here with that or even contradictory from time to time. For example, read Genesis chapter 1 and then read Genesis chapter 2. The first time I read those, it was mind-blowing when I experienced it. These are individual stories about creation and they do not match. Which one is right? Which one is wrong? Are they both right? Or are they both wrong? Can I trust either of them? So yeah, people struggle with the Bible. Maybe you're one of them. There's one thing that we have to understand when it comes to um, understanding about what Scripture is and how it functions. Because when we understand what our bias is, what our baseline understanding of Scripture is, often it comes from how we grew up, then that determines the way we experience the Scriptures when we read them. That, that personal background informs how we do that. Perhaps that is why we often bump into other people around specific Bible verses. You take two people who have vastly different experiences and understanding and approach to the Scripture, and you have a recipe for a pretty big, ugly disagreement on your hands. We all have biases about everything of life, and that includes the Bible. So I want to explore that as a way for us to get at the, today's question. And let me just say, I'm not judging any of these. They're just out there. It's just out there. Uh, the first one is this, and that is the understanding and the experience that the Bible is inerrant 
and infallible. Have you run into those words about the Bible, the inerrancy, if you will, of Bible? And essentially, that is the idea that there is nothing in the Bible that could ever be questioned as any kind of error, and that when you read it, it cannot fail. Now, this originates from a belief that the Bible is without anything that would be questioned. Now, of course, there are different levels of inerrancy for different people. It ranges from, on the one hand, folks who approach it from a literal kind of teaching that says there ain't nothing wrong anywhere in the Bible. No errors at all. That includes chronology, the order in which things happen. It includes history. It includes physics, like how the world works, that kind of stuff. And that inerrancy family includes also those who say that the scripture is always without error when it is fulfilling its purpose. And its purpose is revealing God. It is revealing the nature of God. The Bible's purpose is to reveal God's purposes in the world, and God's good news to humanity. That's a range of folk, isn't it? What has happened, I think, in like the past 200-ish years, and primarily it was a part of coming out of the Enlightenment period of the 1700s, is that inerrancy has swung to that more literal understanding And I would suspect that that, for folks who talk about inerrancy, that's the dominant way of thinking. And many Christians feel like this is is the only position that we could adopt. Because if I thought any other way, uh, in some other way, what I'm going to do is I'm going to discredit the whole of the Bible. And it's no longer a reliable source. So the way to hang on to it is say there are no errors. There's a fear that if we raise a question about any minute detail of something we might find in one individual text, then we got to throw the whole deal out. It discredits all of it. I've had people say to me, when I have been willing to look at the questions about how could you trust any of the Bible for truth if you're leaving room for details that might not be exact. Now, I think... An interesting way, this just hit me yesterday, so this is brand new. (laughs) I think a way to maybe get at this is to think about the words truth and precision. You with me? Truth and precision. These words do have some overlap, don't they? But they are not synonyms. They are similar In that it takes a certain amount of precision is required for truth. But the amount varies from one context to to another. Let me give you an example. If a mathematics student says 2 plus 3 equals 6. Have they told you the truth? No. That is not true because it requires, in this context, precision. And so the only true answer to the question, what is 2 plus 3, is 5. It must be precise. Does that make sense? 
Now, if you ask someone how old they are, and by the way, I have learned in my life, you don't ask everybody how old they are. The typical number they give you is the number that is associated with their last birthday. How old are you, Wade? I am 30. I am 60. That is the truth. But it is not precise. The more pre a more precise answer would be, I am 60 years, 8 months, 9 days, and 22 hours old. Yes, I did call my mom and ask her what time I was born. And yes, there is a website that will calculate that for you. However, that's not even precise. Because I calculated that based on 9 a.m. today. So I'm a lot older than I was then. So, question. When I tell someone I am 60, am I telling the truth? Yes. You can say it out loud if you want to. Is it precise? No. Does it need to be? Not in this context. This is, catch this, this is ordinary and expected accuracy. We expect it. It makes sense. Ordinary and expected accuracy. Now, the Bible, for the most part, is ordinary language. It's not technical language. The Bible is not a mathematics textbook. And we can expect that there will be some imprecisions along the way. Is this making sense? That there's still truth, even if it's not precise. I think the challenge for Christians uh, that we think that inerrancy means precise. And for some folks, that's where they've come to. And I believe that the Bible is absolutely a trustworthy source of truth. And I also make room for the fact that it's not always precise. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2 that I mentioned earlier. Both tell the creation story. They are very different, especially in chronology. Are they precise? No. Are they true? Yes. Or how about looking at the life of Jesus across the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell the story of the life of Jesus. If you read all four of those, you will notice that the writers of the Gospel didn't get the story the same across all four of the Gospels. I mean, 60 plus years went by before the first one was even recorded. And we will find across the Gospels that there are times that stories and parables and stuff, the, the writers don't always have them happening at the same time or in the same order, and in some cases, not even in the same location. So are they precise? No. Are they true? Help a brother out. Yes. By the way, this is a long sermon, so buckle up. Now, the second approach that often is in the background, I'm telling you these because these approaches are in your backdrop. 
They affect the way you experience scripture. The second approach to scripture that's very similar but slightly different is this fancy thing called verbal plenary inspiration. You like that one? Verbal plenary inspiration. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that because it's very similar to what I've just talked about, but it's worth mentioning. What the heck is that? Well, it's the idea that God essentially dictated the words that became the Bible and came in through the room and into the ears of the one who would write it down and made its way down to their hand and, and then it came out of whatever they were writing on. Do you, do you get that? I remember when I was a kid and I first learned about this, um, I had this weird image in my mind and everything's weird with me, I know, I'm sorry, but it was like a cartoon. Everything was a cartoon. And it was this image of a, a dude sitting in a room with paper and pen, the windows open, sun is shining through, God's booming voice is coming, and this poor dude was writing feverishly to try to get everything down that he was hearing God say. And I remember that it gave me an anxiety attack. Why? Because I know that I would miss something if that was me. Uh, thank God. God's not been asking me to write any scripture anytime, anytime recently. And this is the kind of, of thinking that often leads to slogans to try to reinforce that meaning. You might have seen one of these because this one was on the bumper stickers uh, for a long time. And the bumper sticker read like this. Do you ever wish that like you were in a parking lot and you could just rip bumper stickers off cars? This was one I wanted to rip off. It went like this. It's in the Bible. God said it, I believe it, that's final. That wasn't really helpful. I don't know what the goal or the motivation for that particular bumper sticker was, but for folks who have questions, for folks who are uh, non-Christians, for folks who have doubts, I'm not a fan of that kind of thing. If you're going to put a bumper sticker on your car that's related to faith, will y'all we all do your poor old pastor a favor? Will you ask yourself this question first? If a non-believer or someone struggling with faith read this bumper sticker, would it turn them toward Jesus or away from Jesus? A lot of them turn people away. That's just a little favor from, you know, Uncle Wade. Would you do that? Now, the Bible as we have it today was recorded over thousands and thousands of years by really human, human beings just like you and me. And because of that, there's going to be some imprecision. There's going to be some inconsistency. And y'all, relax. That's okay. The reality is that the Bible, uh, in the Bible, there are these inconsistencies and there are these difficult passages that relate to violence or genocide or the subjection of groups of people. That stuff is there, but, but it's just a tiny, tiny little bit of what is this bigger overarching message about a God who has created us, a God who loves us. It tells us a story about a God who provides for us, a God who loves us so much that God would lay it all on the line and give us Jesus. That's the bigger truth message the Bible conveys. And I like to say that that information is the best love story you could ever read. It is a love story about a God who created us, a God who loves us so deeply that God is 
unrelenting in working to reconcile all of us back to God's own self. And y'all, that's all in that good book. That's what the Bible is about. So I want to talk about a third way that we might approach the scriptures. And that is to look at the scriptures from the perspective of that love story that the scriptures are telling the life story of God and how God's life story intersects with the human story and then we learn how to live in that relationship. Adam Hamilton, when we were um, at that event, he used this word. He said it's kind of like a biography of God. Now, I will tell you, I was totally weirded out when I heard him say that the first time. It's like I can't imagine hearing myself ever say that, and I just did. <clears throat> so be because even though I pushed back a little bit at first, when I, when I um, gave it some reflection, I began to realize he might be on to something here. When it comes to our questions and our doubts, essentially what he was saying is that over these thousands of years, people who, uh, who wrote these things down ran this gamut. Some of the people who wrote stuff in the Bible were there when it happened. They were there and saw Jesus go to that cross. They were there and saw Jesus get out of that grave. They have that kind of first-hand experience. There's also a lot of writers of the biblical text that are people who wrote things down based on what they received from the oral, oral tradition. And what that means is generation after generation after generation, they would sit around and tell the stories about creation and tell the story about, uh, about Noah. They would tell the stories and pass it to the next generation. And then they would pass it to the next generation. I always imagined that would be kind of like an evening around a campfire with s'mores. I don't know, maybe something like that. And then at some point, somebody wrote that stuff down. Those are the writers that we have for the Bible. And the reason Adam used the word biography was tied to what biographies are. Are biographies written by the person that they are about? No, that is an autobiography. Biographies are written by an outside party who comes to learn and understand as much as they possibly can about the subject, and then they write this uh, final product, it gets published, and it's typically very true. But he reminded us that it is through the experience and the mind of the biographer that they get. And so inevitably, there will be things that are basically true, but not, what's our new favorite word? Precise. He said exact. I like the word precise. And I think that makes sense. So given all of that, Pastor Wade, what's your advice for when we have doubts and questions about the scriptures? Now, that's where you have this cool little handout. Do you ever notice that when I've got a whole bunch to dump, you get a handout? <laughs> um, grab this, and um, I'm going to give you some stuff that might help you as we uh, buzz through, here through the end part. I want to share with you six techniques that might be useful to keep in mind when you read the Bible, especially when you hit something that doesn't make sense or something that raises questions or something that could cause you some doubt. The first one is this. Pray for the Holy Spirit to guide you. Pray for the Holy Spirit to guide you. The Bible itself, as 
an inanimate, inanimate object is like, looks like any other book. There are words on pieces of paper that are bound together, and it becomes a book, and you put it on your coffee table in your house, right? Ask the Holy Spirit to inspire your reading of this text, and it will come to life. Now, how do I do that? Personally, myself, is I pray a one-sentence prayer, and it usually goes something like this. Holy Spirit, help my eyes to see, help my ears to hear, help my mind to understand, and my heart to be impacted. Show me your truth in this passage. Amen. That's pretty easy, right? That's a way of inviting the Holy Spirit to be with you. Now, I love double dog dares. So I'm going to double dog dare you to read scripture, first inviting the Holy Spirit, and see if you come to the place that you don't experience something you didn't expect. It'll happen. Number two. Uh, second thing is to, uh, when you try to read scriptures is to read them through the lens of Jesus. Lens of Jesus. That's for your sheet. Have in mind what you understand to be the character and the mind and the will of Jesus when you read Scripture and ask yourself if that question is consistent with how uh, I understand Jesus to be. There's a lot of stuff that we encounter, especially in the Old Testament, that is shocking to us. And it's actually stuff, check this out, it's stuff that Jesus didn't agree with. And he pushed back against his own scripture when it wasn't consistent. Do you want an example of that? Here's an example. Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Y'all, that's in the Bible. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus went on and he said, but I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He pushed back too. Always read through the lens of Jesus. Number three, think about, um, when you think about scripture, and that is to remember the great commandment. The great commandment. You have too many blanks on your sheet because originally it was great commandment and golden rule, but I knew I was going to run out of time for golden rule. So you can still write it down. The great commandment goes like this. It comes from Jesus. What is the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all of your soul, at, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all of your mind. That is the first and greatest commandment. And then he said this. Second is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. The law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Hear that again. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Some of that tough stuff in the Bible it's in the law and the prophets. And what Jesus is saying that if you love God with everything you got and you love your neighbor like you love yourself, you're going to fulfill that stuff even when you can't get it or it doesn't make sense. So when in doubt, run it through the great commandment. If it doesn't work, ask questions. Number four, um, is to look for and see themes of, and there's four words, here we go. Look for themes of love, compassion, justice, and mercy. 
Love, compassion, justice, and mercy. Why? Because we know that's the nature of God. If we say that God is compassionate and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, then what we glean from Scripture ought to reflect that. And if it doesn't, ask some questions. Number five is really easy. Discuss it with a trusted friend. If you can't get it, if it's making you doubt, if it's raising some questions, find a trusted friend and talk about it. Not only will they welcome it, but they'll be pretty excited to have the conversation. Don't Google it. There is garbage when you Google Bible questions. Number six is use reason and experience. Y'all, we are United Methodist. One of the hallmarks of being United Methodist is we say that we are thinking Christians. We involve and include and invite our intellect as well as our heart to be a part of the theological uh, uh, process. And so the question is, what does my intellect bring to this? Um, how have I experienced God in a similar situation before in, in, in light of this thing that's right in front of me? Now, I know that's a lot to chew on. But if you have questions when you read scriptures and it causes doubt, remember this, y'all. There is a difference between doing nothing about it, which just festers away, and engaging actively to take on the questions. And when you do that, your faith grows. So I want to encourage you to uh, take this um, insert and make it your newest, greatest Bible marker. Put it in your Bible. And when you run into something that doesn't make sense, rip it out and run your question through it. Um, and you will find, I think, that it makes uh, a big difference. So I want to encourage you that if you have any doubt or questions uh, about the Bible and Scripture, good for you. It's a sign that you want to have a deeper understanding. And I hope something in the backdrop of this today will encourage you when you read the Scriptures. And if you haven't been reading it recently, no shame. Go grab that thing and get the dust off of it and see what you can, see what you can find, find in there. Uh, friends, I know that we're running tight on time, and uh, we've got to hurry up offense going here, and uh, we'll make it. But I want us to share in communion this morning. And uh, this is one of the ways that we see a tangible, check this out, a tangible story in the Bible. You know what? You can go in the Bible, and you can read the very words that we say at this table, or just pretty close to it. And this is where a, a story of the Bible comes to, to life, and we experience it. Because we remember that on the last night that Jesus was with his disciples, he took bread, he gave thanks to God, he broke the bread, gave it to his disciples, and he said, take eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this as often as you will, and remember me. And so this is the bread of heaven. Later on in the night, he took a cup, he gave thanks to God, and then he gave it to all of his friends and his disciples who were gathered around. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood which will be poured out for you and for many. It's for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this as often as you will. And when you do it, do it in remembrance of me. And so when we come to this, that Bible story has, has inspired this thing called communion. And we have the bread of heaven and the cup of salvation for the people of God. God, I pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on all of us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and cup. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ 
that we may be for the world, the body of Christ, those who are redeemed by his blood. God, would you make it so, and would you use us in Jesus' name? Amen. Friends, in the United Methodist Church, this table is an open table. So regardless of the tradition of faith that brings you here, or no tradition of faith, you're welcome to participate today. Um, I invite you to take uh, the piece of bread from your communion elements you got as you came in. My friends, the body of Christ, broken for you. Take and eat. My friends, the blood of Christ, shed for you. Take and drink. May you be sustained and encouraged through the mystery of this meal in your journey, even when you have a question and even when you hit that wall of doubt. God will see you through. So thanks for joining us in worship today, and I hope there were some things in the service today to help you and encourage you in your own journey of faith. Maybe even raise some additional questions, and you know what? That's okay. We'll continue this journey next week. Look forward to seeing you then. Until then, God bless you, and have a great week.